Welcome to Discover Ag, where every week we discover what's new in the world of agriculture. We're your hosts, Natalie Kavorik, a rancher and pharmacist from Nebraska, and Tara Vanderdusen, a dairy farmer and environmental scientist from New Mexico. And together we bring you our professional farming opinions on a variety of trending topics in the ag and food space, so you can better understand our food system and feel connected to the hands that feed us. Welcome back to episode 100. That's right, Discos, you guys heard correct. We have made it to the big milestone of 100. And honestly, there is no other content I'd rather be sharing today on this Tuesday debunking than highlighting the wonderful film Sacred Cow. Yeah, if you are new here, welcome to our summer debunking series where we have for the last couple of months been debunking negative films in the ag and food space and highlighting positive ones. If you have not listened yet, last month we debunked Game Changers with um, our guest, Lauren Twig, who is an RD, and we highlighted Beyond Impossible with producer of the film, Vinny Torrich. Those are episodes 91 and 93. And then last week, we debunked Cowspiracy. And as Natalie mentioned, today we are here to discuss and highlight the film Sacred Cow with one of the co-producers of the film, Diana Rogers. So Diana Rogers, welcome to Discover Ag. Thanks so much. Yeah, this is actually not your first time on Discover Ag. I don't know if you remember, but last fall, you actually came on for one of our advocacy episodes, and we kind of covered just the global anti-meat narrative in general. It was episode 49 for anyone tuning in who has not listened to that one yet. It's a good one. Yeah, it's nice to be back. Um, Just got back from Montana from a trip there and have a little bit of a lull in my schedule before more trips. So uh, the anti-meat narrative is still going strong out there and happy to see that my film is still relevant. Yeah. So I actually missed out on the first time we interviewed you. And so I'm excited to talk with you today and hear more about this film. There is so much good stuff that you guys covered in that previous episode, and we have a lot to cover today. And one of the things that we've done in this debunking series is really starting off with like our opinions of the film. And one of my favorite things about this film was your kind of opening scene, something, and it's something that Natalie and I talk actually a lot about is that the more connected people are to agriculture, where their food comes from, the less they fear it. And so opening up with that like butcher shop scene of like, the reality of like, this is your meat. This is what it starts as, you know, like this is the carcass this is how it's butchered. I felt like was really, really powerful. And I'm curious why you decided to like open with that and like what made you motivated to really like start with that like cut of meat opening scene. Yeah, it wasn't actually initially the opening scene. Um, I had interviewed so many people and there was so much different footage and it looked like one of my favorite shoots with Henrik in Belgium wasn't going to make it into the film at all. And so I had this idea to the editors, why don't we open with him? A lot of people who are kind of uh, on the fence about eating meat or don't really understand why I needed to make a film like this felt like it was too graphic to like open with carcasses of meat. But that's how I approach my social media, my book, you know, I kind of go right in and like, here's the reality, you're eating meat, this is what it looks like. Now take responsibility for it. And I do have to say that butcher shop deer and dock, which uh, has a few different locations in Belgium, had some of the most beautiful meat cases I have ever seen. And his energy is just so fantastic. He's so passionate about it. Definitely one of my favorite shoots. It's 
funny that all three of us were drawn to that because that actually how much you highlighted different butcher shops throughout the film was something I was really drawn to too. There was a point in the film where you were interviewing the couple out of California and he was, you know, walking through his locker and then, you know, the, I believe it was pork that was hanging and then they were just showing very, what I felt was very intricate, beautiful, like skill sets of butchering and crafting and packaging the meat. And then you kind of switched and went to the processing of lab-grown meat. And I thought it was such a powerful juxtaposition between the two processes right now when there is getting so much attention right now on the benefits, um, the pros, how we should be drawn to this lab-grown meat. Um, And I thought it really highlighted the difference as well. Well, it was actually, it was Beyond Meat that we were featuring in there. Oh, yeah. So, you know, factor, I mean essentially same idea, right? Like made in a factory. And uh, the footage we used was actually their own publicity footage that we just grabbed from YouTube that had been out there that we were able to use under sort of, uh, I forget what the license was, but because it was their own footage that they had sent out to like show the benefits and the highlights of their product, we were able to use that and just juxtapose that with Joel Salatin and Rob Wolf uh, talking about how horrible it is nutritionally, environmentally, and ethically. That's so funny. I feel like Vinny said something similar about his movie that he was like, I just took it right off their promo, like their wording, and was able to use it to highlight like you know, what was going on. Um, So that's just kind of funny that you were able to do the same thing. So another theme that really stood out to me that I was happy to see was really the influence like government has on our diet, like thinking about the food pyramid. And then Natalie and I have covered the Tufts Food Compass on Discover Ag, which is like a whole another can of worms. But I think that sometimes there's people out there who are like, who cares? Like, who cares what studies are being done or who cares about the Tufts food compass? Like, it's it's not relevant or, you know, it, they think of it almost as a joke. But really, like, it, I think it matters, like, all of these studies, how they're done and then how they influence government and then how government influences our diets. Like, you know, we had this whole narrative that, like, fat is bad and then the food pyramid. Like, things we're still living with when something has, like, government influence. Yeah, I mean, today it's called My Plate, um, and it's the same idea as the food pyramid, where basically the majority of the plate is supposed to be coming from grains, carbohydrates. The protein category is far too low, in my opinion, for the majority of people. But yeah, countries around the world have copied that pyramid, like there's the Uh, There's an igloo up in Canada for the Inuit people, which shows all of their traditional foods that they would hunt that are free to them at the top in the red category as foods that they should be limiting. And then things like orange juice and cereal are at the bottom, things that they should be incorporating more of, which are the exact foods that are making them so sick. You know, right now we're kind of focusing on your film, Sacred Cow, but as you nicely have uh, behind you, you you know, you wrote a book, Sacred Cow, and I, you know, read the book in addition to watching the film, and you do cover different things. I would recommend for everyone who enjoyed watching Diana's film to really read the book because 
um, you talk about this, you talk about the RDA in the book. And um, I actually want to dive into this a little bit, even though I know it's not on the film, because we have never talked about this on the podcast before. We just don't have the opportunity to have a registered dietitian on very much to have this conversation. And I think it's Mm -hmm. really important. So can we kind of just, I guess, take a little bit of a tangent? And can you kind of share what you talk about in the book about the RDA, the changes in weight, how it's low to begin with, and just kind of the whole discussion around RDA? Yeah. So the film, I mean, the film's gorgeous and it's easy. It's an hour and 20 minutes and there was only so much depth we could get into in the film. Uh, So the book obviously goes much deeper into like the nuances between grass fed and grain finished beef. And, uh, you know, my opinion as a dietitian is that any meat is, is better than no meat. And so, you know, there's a place for even conventionally produced meat in our food system, because that's the majority of what's being produced today. And that's what people can access the best. And I, I still think people should be eating meat, even if that means getting it at Walmart and, and, and getting just, you know, typical meat. And so that definitely tends to ruffle people's feathers a lot, especially in the, in the grass fed regen world. And, um, I'm pretty unapologetic about that because as a dietitian, meat, provides nutrients, even if it's feedlot finish, it provides nutrients that we can't get from plants, things like iron and B12. And the protein quality is so much higher in meat versus in plants. And it's just so low in calories and so satiating. It fills you up. It makes you less likely to eat more calories from other things later if you're just meeting your protein goals. And so the the RDA for protein is currently set at 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. And because Americans don't think in grams, and we also are not calculating out our kilograms, um, many graphics out there and, 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 and many much of the public health information just sort of like does the calculations for you and says for women, it's you know, I think 45 grams of protein a day. And for men, it's like 55 grams. It's something ridiculously low hovering around 50 grams of protein a day, which is about half of where I even think the minimum should be for most people. And there's really good evidence that twice the RDA of protein is really where you should be. And in my nutrition practice, that's where I start people. So for women, I start them at a minimum of about 100 grams of protein a day which nobody coming to see me is eating. And then I, I actually have a whole course on how to do this too. And I, I talk about how to, how to calculate it out for your own body, where the best sources are. And then I go into the ethical and environmental case for why meat is important through my sustainable course, which is on my website. Yeah, I love that you uh, talked about the protein because I actually think that's a narrative being pushed a lot online right now by like kind of vegan activists that like, oh, we do- we're getting more protein than we actually need. But the more Natalie and I have been diving into this protein conversation, like the more we realize like the 30 grams per meal per day is the baseline, kind of like you said, like getting that 90 to 100. Um, and I know personally that's something that's been a goal of mine is the 30 grams per day. And I have been loving it. And then as, you know, two conventional farmers, I think I really appreciate what you said at the very beginning of that statement, that there is a need for all types of meat right now. Like we are not getting enough protein. So by, you know, having this conversation where regen and conventional are kind of at odds with each other, I think it really puts um, the population, especially the, you know, populations that maybe need this protein the most or are not getting it. It really creates 
a bad narrative around all of agriculture versus like working together. Like Natalie and I talk about how being regen is kind of like a spectrum. Like we're constantly, even as conventional farmers working towards more and more practices, we're every year implementing different things. Uh, Natalie, you know, talks about like bees that she has on her conventional farm that people or ranch that people maybe wouldn't realize. And that you it's you're working towards being regenerative for a lot of farmers, even conventional farmers. It wasn't something that I was able to get into deeply in the film again, because we just had such limited time in the film. But the Climax farm in the film, the Mexican farm, they actually, I mean, they do regenerative grazing. They're bringing this desert area in Chihuahua, Mexico back to grasslands, but he's selling to feedlots. And that was something I didn't put in the film only because I just didn't have the time to really fully address all the questions that people have, but I do do that in the book. I do that through my social media. There's better and worse ways to graze. Uh, just because an animal is finished on grass doesn't mean it was treated better, tastes better, has a better nutritional profile. And there's a lot of food waste out there that can be upcycled into protein on feedlots finishing. Uh, one thing I learned last fall when I was at the Dublin Meat Summit, I learned that for every pound of plant-based protein, there's four pounds of waste that we can be feeding to cattle to transform into protein, or it can sit in a pile and emit greenhouse grasses, uh, greenhouse gases anyway, right? So it would be a huge loss to our food system if we didn't finish a portion of our cattle on this crop waste and, you know, quickly turn that into protein that can feed a lot of people. So, yeah, if you guys listening are interested kind of in that narrative and some science and studies around that, um, you know, the upcycling, the byproducts, uh, we interviewed Dr. Holder um, from Alltech, and he really went into very deep conversation about the benefit of like, Diana basically just said how cattle upcycle from a lot of other industries or, you know, reducing carbon emissions from a lot of other industries and um, just how it's very, very beneficial and um, often overlooked. Um, okay, circling back to the film. Thank you, everyone, for entertaining my tangent there a little bit. Um, Tara mentioned some of her favorite scenes of the film, and I wanted to point out one of, I think, the most impactful lines for me or statements for me, maybe in the film. I forget the young couple's name, but the gentleman said, quote, there isn't three feet of topsoil in the Midwest because farmers were growing kale for 3000 years. It was because there was bison roaming the plains. And I just really connected to that so much. I mean, we're here in the Nebraska Sandhills. And so we're in a prime example of a point of what a uh, cattle grazing, ruminant grazing does for grasslands. So I thought maybe we could dive into that because that was my favorite portion of Sacred Cow. <laughs> yeah, that one is definitely uh, quoted often from a lot of people. So you're not the only one that, that thought that. Another quote that comes out uh, is from James Rebanks, who is the sheep farmer in England that we filmed with. And right in the beginning, he talks about how, you know, people are trying to make really important ethical and moral decisions, but it's really hard to make those decisions when you don't know very much, right? And I think I think those are the two things that are like the big takeaways from the film, right? Like these people who are protesting meat or uh, the policymakers that are taxing farmers for their carbon emissions, like what we're seeing in New Zealand, the ones that want to call all the livestock in Ireland, they're making very important decisions about, you know, farming families' 
destiny, about the whole impact this is going to have on rural communities based on not knowing very much, right? Um, and the whole idea of um, not only that that ruminants build soil, but also that so much land is not able to be cropped, that most of our agriculture land worldwide can only be grazed um, is something that, uh, you know, just for the very you know, brand new person that is just trying to learn about this, that's the big, like, that's what got me my book deal, basically, was the land use argument. And, and just trying to explain that, you know, when people say, oh, you could grow 10,000 pounds of potatoes or one cow, duh, what would you choose? It's like, well, it's not that simple. And actually, there was a study that came out not too long ago, it looked at the economic value that cattle grazing has on public land. And it found for every animal, it was over $1,000 worth of ecosystem services that oh, that wow. animal was providing. And that's just, that's not regen. That's, you know, that is just like typical grazing on public land that we absolutely have to have farmers and ranchers using that land because we don't have the wild herds anymore um, moving across in that level of impact that would really make a difference on the land. Yeah, you talked about a lot of good things there. But one thing I do think it's that people see a headline and want things to be simple. Natalie and I talk about that a lot. And it's so much more nuanced conversation than that. And there's so much going on. And one thing I loved about your film was the experts you brought on from the farmers and ranchers to, you know, the scientists. So I have to ask you, like, how did you narrow down who you were going to interview or decide? Like, I feel like there's so many great voices out there and you picked some amazing ones. What was that process like? Yeah. Well, I not only am a dietitian, but I'm also a farmer and um, was running my own podcast. I, I still am producing that, The Sustainable Dish podcast. And so I had actually already known all of the people in my film with the exception of maybe one person. And so I knew what I wanted to say in the film. And so I picked the people that would tell that story best. So there were people, unfortunately, that I didn't include that I wanted to, like Will Harris, Gabe Brown. There was a lot of people, and I'm sure feelings were hurt that they weren't <laughs> included in the film. But I was trying to show different elements of the story. So, so each producer or butcher had a very specific role to play in the film. It wasn't like I was just like highlighting all of my favorite people. <laughs> Yeah, well, you did a phenomenal job. I was excited. I had no idea Alejandro was in there. I have listened to a podcast on him. And then I think he is actually on the documentary we're going to highlight next month to which we belong. I'm pretty sure he's in there too, but I might be like melding my documentaries mm -hmm. <laughs> together now. He's but a he, great guy. Um, and I, I'm sure he would be happy to come on to your show. He's really friendly. Yeah, he has a very powerful story of uh, the decision making and the changes. And like you said, I think it's a testimony to something Tar and I talk about and something that maybe we'll dive into here in a minute or so. But that spectrum of... Um, agriculture and really how I think labeling is kind of becoming a little bit dangerous. Um, I would consider us very similar, like our operation, very similar to, to his, obviously not in like terrain and location, but um, we do some very regenerative practices here that are very, very characteristic. And I think very, very powerful. Um, but our beef supply does just enter the conventional beef supply. And so I think uh, really trying to separate us and dissect us out just isn't working anymore. And I think it's really doing harm to the overall mm -hmm. industry. 
Yeah, I think definitely. I I just want to hammer on that too, because I think it's such a disservice that so many people I see in the regenerative grass fed space are like isolating themselves and saying, well, we're better. And that's a huge problem because there are really good practices that are happening before farmers sell to a feedlot. And it's an economic story for Mm -hmm. most people. Um, Alejandro's land just can't support finishing. And it just makes sense for him from a sustainability perspective. You have to be not only, um, you know, ecologically sustainable, but also financially sustainable and viable. And it's just a business decision for him. I think there's a lot of ranchers out there that are doing that. And I think when the regen people talk about how grass finishing is the only type of meat you should eat, less meat, better meat, that whole movement, um, it ends up alienating the folks who are trying to do good grazing and still uh, finishing on a feedlot. And I've been to a bunch of different feedlots. I'm sure you have too. Um, You know, some of them, you know, people have a very kind of knee jerk reaction because they, they see so many feedlots where they're not seeing um, cafo chicken or pork, right? They see the feedlots are like no feedlot beef. Industrial meat is evil, but there's also some feedlots out there that are like club med for cows, right? It's like, they're just hanging out. They're super psyched. <laughs> they get to eat what they want. They're not in cages. Their first part of their life, they were on pasture. So I've really, I mean, when I first started learning about all this stuff, I was definitely like, everything has to be grass fed. And I have really changed my mind the more I've learned about the the cattle industry. And now I'm a firm defender in like, everybody needs to pay attention to trying to do the best they can with the land they have, with the resources that they have. Yeah, I really respect um, your ability to convey all of that so eloquently. Um, To also say that you've changed your opinion in your mind through the journey of discussion. I just think you're a really great example of what truly diving into the system and understanding it and learning about it can do to your perspective when you learn more about it. And I was going to say, I want to switch and go on a different tangent and talk about something Um, We hadn't, you know, kind of seemed offbeat for a second, but I actually think this discussion of feedlots tease it up quite nicely because what I wanted to dive into was the processing facilities. You highlighted that very specifically in your film. And I actually think that is something that is left out of the conversation a lot. I think everyone just says, put up more plants like that'll solve the issue and really downplays um, and maybe just again, from a disconnect, doesn't quite kind of understand what we're up against when it comes to processing. So I would just love if you could kind of share, you know, what you learned about the end stage of the beef industry, Mm because we are very segmented. Like you mentioned, the beginning can be very, very different from the end. Um, And I think it's honestly don't even think people are aware of how segmented the beef industry is, you know. Um, So I love that you kind of highlighted this and talked about it in Sacred Cow. Yeah, I have been to like every size scale of processors from one of the biggest processing plants in Brazil to, you know, teeny tiny ones here in New England. And just because something's small doesn't mean that it's efficient, profitable, or even more humane. That's all I have to say, really. The larger plants where people are, you know, doing this a lot every day. Um, it, it doesn't mean it's bad. It means these, you know, these people are really good at their jobs, and they also have all the systems in place to uh, make the process. You know, people don't like to hear the word efficient when it comes to live animals, but uh, an inefficient processor is a really bad thing. 
I've seen more mistakes on farms and at small processors than I have at the large ones. Big does not always mean bad. I was listening to a podcast recently about uh, sometimes the bigger, whether it's a bigger processor or a bigger farm has like a larger target on their back for like making sure they do things right because they are so under the microscope when it comes to all of these conversations. Um, But bringing it back to actually the nutrition side, I have spent a little bit of time recently working kind of uh, with the UN like FAO. And I really loved in the film when you highlighted some of the challenges in developing nations, like they can't just go out and buy a supplement. So to say like the world is going to be like vegan and you're going to take all these supplements in order to fill the nutritional gaps doesn't make a lot of sense. And also from an economic, which you mentioned like the economic side a little bit, but like for a lot of developing nations, the role that livestock plays, uh, especially for women is, I mean, it's incredible. Like they need livestock in order to thrive. I know dairy has done a big study with the UN about like the economic benefits of livestock for developing nations and for women. I have a nonprofit called the Global Food Justice Alliance, and uh, a lot of my work highlights exactly what you just said. About half the women in the world can't own land, but they can own livestock. And so organizations like Heifer International, which, you know, try to get women livestock as walking piggy banks uh, so that they can, you know, sell some milk or some eggs in order for shoes for their kids to go to school. Like that's a that's a real reality. Just because you think you should be vegan, it, it, it it's not okay to be pushing that agenda on other cultures. But, you know, programs like Meatless Mondays and Vegan Fridays, which is in New York City public schools is so incredibly unethical because um, nutritionally, there's never been any evidence to show that pulling meat away, especially for from at-risk kids, will do them good. You know, I am a firm believer that you should surround yourself with um, varying viewpoints, right? You know, people who think different things than you, that challenge your thoughts, that... Um, you know, the whole gamut. But it is very refreshing sometimes to also be around people who have very similar beliefs as you. And I just resonate and support and believe in so much of what you say. So these interviews are always fun for me because I'm like, yes, I wanted to talk about that. Yes, I think that too, (laughs) because I just align so much with your thoughts. So um, thank you for sharing all this expertise and your opinions. Uh, I think we're approaching time here. So I think uh, maybe I'll kind of dive into one of the last things that I want to highlight in the TAR can do the same. And we touched on this earlier, but I want to pull it out and kind of focus on it more because uh, it's interesting. You know, I said my favorite quote, and then you followed up with like the second one of the second most quoted um, lines from the film. And it was actually one of my other favorite points is when you were interviewing uh, the sheep farmer. And as you mentioned, he talked about kind of where we got to this point in society and how we got here and how we kind of didn't think about it um, and how it's to no one's fault. And that's something I talk about a lot when I go, I'm guests on other podcasts is, you know, we got to where we got in our food system for a reason, for better or worse, right? Never just level-headed. And I thought what he said was so important to remember, you know, farmers want to blame consumers, consumers want to blame farmers. And I feel like we need to just remember, you know, that we're all, <laughs> we're all in this together and it truly is no one's fault. And moving forward, um, it can't be either, you know, party's faults either. And it can't be either party's responsibilities either. I totally agree. And that came out when I was in Montana, someone was asking, like, what do I do? How do I push back? And I'm like, this is not just a meat problem. This is a society problem. And I think that the meat plants argument actually symbolizes 
a left right argument or a red blue argument or an urban rural argument right so meat has absorbed um a lot of um energy that it doesn't need it, it this should be like a secular non-political topic this should be based on you know what's right for nutrition what's right for the economics of uh rural communities like this should be something that everyone should get behind. So I will be in Salt Lake City at a conference geared at dietitians who work in grocery stores, just talking to them about the value of meat and uh, not shrinking the case, uh, reminding them of the important value of meat because dietitians don't always agree either on, on all of this stuff. I'll be in Canada at a beef conference in Calgary in August, uh, followed by a rodeo, which I'm excited about. Mm -hmm. And then um, I'll be traveling to Uruguay in September to check out their beef industry there and um, meet with some government and policy makers and some media there. So I've shut down my nutrition practice and I'm mostly just um, offering the course right now, which is all of my knowledge dumped into an awesome course called Sustainivore that I mentioned earlier. And it's like less it's less than working with me anyway. For the majority of people, that's all they need to just absorb everything. And then the Global Food Justice Alliance, my nonprofit, where we facilitate meat donations. I work with industry to help them be better. I work with you know big players in industry, and I actually consult with them on how they can do better, either through animal handling or environmental practices or nutrition practices. And then just the education that we do with trying to make sure that people are not overly swayed by the anti-meat narrative. So through our social media and newsletter and podcasts and things like that. Why don't you go ahead and specifically kind of um, let people know, you know, where they the name of your podcast. And I know you mentioned it earlier, but yeah. kind of call out your social handles, sure. give all those plugs. Yeah. So I'm at Sustainable Dish and I'm mostly active on Instagram. Uh, my nonprofit is Global Food Justice Alliance and that's globalfoodjustice.org. Uh, or you can find us on at Global Food Justice. Um, and I use those words very carefully to um, Global Food Justice because it is a food justice issue. Pulling meat away from people that need it is not ethically okay. And then, of course, the book uh, and the film are both called Sacred Cow. And you can find that book, you know, through major online retailers. Uh, the The film is available through streaming options like uh, Amazon Prime. Um, but you can, I don't know, I have one of those TVs you can just like say the film in, or the <laughs> yeah. movie into and it just like pops up. So um, my film has popped up for free like through, I don't know, Tubi. I can't even remember what it was. Some of those streaming things. Um, and yeah, I, I think if anyone's really interested in helping me out, it would be to join me at Global Food Justice. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today. Um, it was a really pleasure to have you on. And thank you to everyone who watched Sacred Cow and listened to the podcast today. We'll see you guys next week.